It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, exactly 100 years ago, next Monday, December the 6th, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in London. The treaty was the culmination of the War of Independence in this country and provided a framework in which the 26 counties in Ireland would remove itself from British rule. As we know, the remaining six counties would remain under British rule. By any standards, though, it was a momentous occasion. Later on, on the day that the treaty was signed, the Cork Examiner editorial ran as follows. It is too soon for shouting, but it is not too soon to thank God for a great achievement. Whatever may happen now, as the outcome of that momentous meeting at Downing Street that lasted into the early hours of this morning, this one great thing has been done, which nothing can undo. Ireland's claim to independence has been admitted. That was, as I say, the editorial in the Cork Examiner. Later on in the day, uh, the treaty, of course, was signed in the very early hours of December 6th. History has shown that the euphoria was short-lived. Within months, a civil war had broken out. And by the following August, the two main signatories on the Irish side, Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, were both dead. But was the signing of the treaty an occasion worthy of celebration? Did it provide, as Collins claimed at the time, the freedom to achieve freedom? Joining me to remember those times is Gabriel Doherty, who lectures in UCC's School of History. Gabriel, you're very welcome, or should I say welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. Gabriel, if we could just kind of set the scene, I think the negotiations were going on over a protracted period around six weeks, then we're coming up towards early December and it seems like things are coming to a head. I mean, things really had uh, heated up really in the last sort of three or four weeks in, in November. The, the first three or four weeks of the negotiations in October were really the two sides feeling each other out. Neither side was really pushing too hard on any specific points. They were staking their claim to to the various different points that, that, that they, they hoped to impress. But th- there was a, a determination, as it were, to, to try and avoid seeking out points of problem, to try and achieve the, the most that could be achieved on the areas where it seemed that the agreement was possible and an agreement to defer the, the real sticking points until later on. But, of course, there was only so long that could happen. And in November, and certainly in the second half of November, when the matters had become refined and, and it was clear what the issues were, then you really started to have a sense of, of urgency. Um, and the British really started pushing, certainly the, those three or four days leading up to the 6th uh, of December. Uh, the British were determined to have a decision one way or the other. Uh, and of course, that that included at least the threat uh, of war uh, if, if uh, the agreement wasn't to their liking. Okay, and just, I suppose, just in terms of the specifics that were being negotiated, we won't get too technical, but the main issues. Now, the previous July... Eamon de Valera, president of the what was self-declared republic, met with Lloyd George and they kind of, I suppose, set out the parameters maybe. What were the main points then and how different were they by the time we got to the final days of the uh, negotiations? Well, I suppose just we'll take one step just before the, the, the British made their initial offer 
uh, on the 20th of July and recall that as far as the British were concerned, they'd already made a major concession uh, in the form of the Government of Ireland Act. Um, in, in the British perspective, the grant of home rule had been a major leap forward. Remember, this was a, a government that was dominated by the Conservative Party, uh, the Conservative Party which had backed the, the also unionist cause to the hilt uh, in the years prior to the First World War, uh, and doing a complete U-turn and accepting the application of home rule to Ireland, uh, having fought against it or, or come close to fighting against it five, six years before. Albeit, of course, that the Government of Ireland Act had uh, qualified the, the offer of home rule to Ireland by including partition. So that, that was, as it were, the starting point. Partition was established. Uh, the Parliament of Northern Ireland had been created. And of course, famously, it was at the, the state opening of the Parliament that the King had delivered the speech, which the British government had written for him, in effect, extending the, uh, an olive branch uh, to, to the Irish separatists. Um, and it was in that context that de Valera accepted the invitation to go to, to London. Uh, to talk to Lloyd George. So the, the initial British offer goes much further than Home Rule. Uh, this is dominion status. Uh, this is, in effect, almost complete uh, independence uh, in the sense of self-government, albeit conditioned with, hedged in with several conditions, and always subject to the general premise of all the dominions that they had to be within the empire and had to be loyal to the crown. The crown was, as it were, the fountain of honour in the British system generally, and, and the point of contact for all the uh, the empire. And of course, just today, uh, that Barbados has declared itself a republic and rejected uh, the uh, Queen as head of state. So uh, even some of these issues are still alive to the literally the, the, the present day. Uh, so it's self-government, um, but in addition to general dominion status, which requires some oath of allegiance and uh, presence within the empire, uh, the British then added other conditions uh, which weren't generally applicable to the dominions such as Australia, Canada, South Africa. Uh, and these, these included such matters as uh, Ireland would not have any navy. Uh, Australia had a navy, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada had their own navy, but it was stated that Britain would have complete control, sole control of, of all the seas. Uh, it was saying that uh, the Irish, an Irish defence force, a territorial force could be created, but that had to be limited in extent. Uh, full uh, facilities had to be made available to the RAF. Uh, the voluntary recruiting for British Army regiments would still be required uh, in uh, the Irish Free State. That there would have to be an agreement that there could be no tariffs or trade wars. Uh, between the two entities, and that the Irish would have to share a proportion of the British war debt. Now, none of those conditions apply to any other dominion. Would it be fair to say that a large part of the collective reason why they would have applied to Ireland and not others is literally down to geography? We're there on yes. Britain's doorstep, and if there's any threat at a time when they were just out of First World War, they wanted to ensure that if Ireland had some form of independence, it would never be able to be used as a base, for instance, by, for example, the Germans or whomever, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that is exactly the point that de Valera made in his reply 
uh, to the British proposals on the 10th of August. Just to quote, dominion status for Ireland, everyone who understands the conditions knows to be illusory. The freedom which the British dominions enjoy is not so much the result of legal enactments or of treaties, but of the immense distances which separate them from Britain and have made interference by her impracticable. Uh, and, and he said that the, the precise, on the one hand, you're giving us a concession in your eyes, dominion status. On the other hand, you're taking it away by subjecting it to, to precisely the restrictions that don't apply to any other dominion. And here I come back to the issue of, as well, the, I suppose, the distinction between home rule and dominion status. The two crucial differences would be defence and economy. Under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, Ireland would have no right to have any influence whatsoever over its own defence, wouldn't have the right to have its own army, would still be subject to the, the complete control by the British Army, Royal Navy, RAF. Every other dominion did have the right to create their own armies, air forces and navies, and the British had encouraged them to do so, uh, to, particularly to assist in the First World War. And the second point was with regard to the economy. Under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, there were these very complicated financial arrangements as to what the Irish state could and couldn't do when it came to taxation and expenditure. Under the treaty and dominion status, all of those in theory were supposed to have been swept away. But the fact that the British were insisting that you had to have free trade between Britain and Ireland meant that in practice the Irish couldn't have complete autonomy in its uh, financial affairs. Remember in those days income tax and expenditure taxes weren't the main form of revenue. Uh, these were customs right. duties and excise duties. Um, and, and from that point of view, the fact that the Irish would be precluded from nurturing their own native industries uh, because you wouldn't be entitled to apply uh, taxes or customs duties to British produce, in effect, again, took, sort of took the teeth out of the offer. Every other dominion could and did impose duties against British goods where they thought that this was... Uh, infringing their economic rights, but Ireland was prevented from doing so. So in both of those areas, defence and economy, in effect, what the British gave with one hand, they took away with the other. Okay, and that was how things stood in terms of their offer in, in the summer of 21. Yeah. Fast forward to the last days of the negotiations. Had there been much retreat or much concession from those positions by the British? Yes and no. Uh, there are some areas where certainly there's a significant advance on not so much the statement on the 20th of July, but some of the early British suggestions uh, during the negotiations in October and early November. For example, in the area of, of the wording of the oath, the British were insistent that an oath be included, but the actual wording of that oath was, was quite watered down compared to uh, what was applied in, in the other dominions. Uh, so the allegiance was given not to the king per se, and that's as well a standard of misunderstanding, but to the constitution of the Irish Free State. Uh, and all the uh, those who had to take the oath would be uh, obliged to do with regard to the king was simply to be faithful to the king. Uh, and that was seen to be a lesser uh, requirement than, than allegiance or obedience. Um, but in a number of other respects, uh, and, and, and in slight respect, for example, on the naval side of things, the Irish did win the right to have, as it were, the British were merely responsible, uh, generally responsible for, for the oceans, but Ireland would have the right to have coastal defence, would have the right to have fisheries protections, uh, with uh, a guarantee that Ireland would have 
the right to review the general situation in about six years' time, uh, 1927. So in that respect, some of the key things that the British were looking for, the Irish were able to whittle away. But the crucial points, and of course this is where the, the real vex issues lay, was, was within the status. Um, de Valera's ambition for the Irish delegates was that they should try to achieve, in his word, external association. The island would internally have a form of a republic where sovereignty, as it were, would come, uh, depending on your point of view, either from the people or from God through the people, as the modern constitution uh, expresses it, rather than down from uh, the crown. Um, but they would voluntarily enter into an association with, as opposed to being a member of the British Commonwealth. That position, Gabriel, and Dev was famous for the external association, realistically, Apart from anything else, if Dev himself had gone, he turned out to be a fantastic negotiator. Was it in the gift of the British negotiators at a time when they were looking towards India, when their son was perhaps coming down on the British Empire and all that global scenario a couple of years after the First World War? Would it even have been in the gift of the negotiators to give that to the Irish? Well, it's interesting you mentioned India because, of course, in the aftermath of the Second World War, when, of course, the empire certainly had started to fall down around areas, that's, that's exactly the status that they do grant. In India is a republic, uh, not associated with the Commonwealth, but within the, within the Commonwealth, but having a republican form of, uh, of government. So the, the final solution, as it were, of the Indian problem wasn't a million miles away removed from, from de Valera's suggestion a quarter of a century before. So, I mean, I would argue that de Valera's uh, insight there was was perhaps more commendable than he's, he's often been given credit for. But you're right. I, I, I think the British, so it, I think he took the Second World War before the British realised that the empire was dead. But flipping it on, it, uh, on its head, if you could get Ireland within the empire, which of course is what the, the British did get uh, by the, the sanction of the treaty, they believe would be a tremendous boon to the empire and would strengthen it tremendously because one of the weakest points of the empire had been the Irish communities in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand, not so much in South Africa, although there were some. In the Irish in Australia, it had, had been a sort of a, a bone of contention, had really been sort of a, a weak link in the empire. For example, during the, the, the First World War, the Irish in Australia had led the campaign against conscription. Uh, with with the Catholic Church in Australia, which was effectively Irish, leading that campaign against conscription, as of course they were involved in the campaign against conscription uh, in Ireland. So, from that point of view, to get Ireland to voluntarily accept membership of the empire, as far as the British were concerned, was going to tremendously strengthen the empire uh, and give it a strength that it had never previously enjoyed. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. And we get to the, as I say, back again to the final days. And I mean, two elements to it that strike me. First of all, what, in your opinion, would have satisfied Dev, perhaps not the, 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 the real hard men who saw themselves as Republican, but at least De Valera and those closest to him, that was not actually achieved. That's one thing. And the other element to it, which I think you know rightly, so you know far better than I would, may be crucial, is this business that in the end they did not revert back to De Valera and the Cabinet before actually signing. Yeah. And, and I think that's important. I think one should remember that De Valera had already experienced one 
very traumatic split in, in the recent past when he was in America. Uh, and he knew just how debilitating a division of uh, the limited resources that Republicans could field, as it were, could be. And, and I think he was absolutely desperate to avoid any suggestion of a split and certainly any formalization of that split, which is the reason why he gave instructions to the delegation that they had to refer any last draft back to the uh, to Dublin, both because it gave them a breathing space, uh, and and he believed that this would prevent the British exerting the type of psychological pressure, which ultimately is what they do, and also because it would mean that nothing would be signed in London that wouldn't be defended in Dublin. Uh, but of course, by signing without getting the advanced agreement, uh, then that division occurs. To come back to your first question as to what could have been offered that de Valera would have accepted, it frankly, it's very difficult to, to think that the British would have gone that extra mile. De Valera, of course, in the treaty debates, offers document number two, which incorporates several elements of the treaty almost verbatim. Uh, he's doing his best, as it were, once the split has occurred to try and patch it up. Um, so there were certain elements of the treaty uh, that he was willing to agree to. And of course, remember, he had been constantly updated throughout the negotiations uh, on a daily basis with, with dispatches being sent from London. So he was very au fait with what, as, as the rest of the cabinet were, with what the issues were and how the debate uh, and the discussions had evolved. He would also have known that the prospect of going back to war was a very grim one, wouldn't he? He would, but, but he stated quite early on uh, that if war had to be faced, he said that it was something that you you would have to face up to. Uh, he didn't he didn't exactly embrace the prospect of war. I don't think anybody in December 1921, when we had weather like we have it at the moment and it's dark and miserable and, and, and whatnot, could face the idea of British soldiers back on the streets, curfews and people being dragged out of their beds and internment and whatnot. But but he what he did make it absolutely clear. To, to the delegation that if the British threatened war, then the delegation should make it clear, whether this was a negotiating tactic or whether it's whether he sincerely believed it, that it was a prospect that the Irish were willing to, to face up to. One thing about that, Gabriel, no, maybe I'm wrong here, but this is what it would strike me. If that eventuality arose, the British could turn around to the international community and particularly America and say, we did everything possible we could to bring a resolution to this. There was no hope of dealing with these people. And the subsequent war that would occur, I would suggest quite possibly, would be far more brutal in terms of the tactics deployed thereafter. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Yes, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, yes, I mean, the, uh, and that was a factor in the decision taken by the delegation to sign, um, which is, and, and, and Michael Collins expressed it in the treaty debates where, say, whatever about war himself as an individual, he's faced up to the threats of war for two and a half years or whatever and, and hadn't blinked. But as far as he was concerned, he didn't want to force the Irish people to go through that again uh, without them having the opportunity to express an opinion as to whether they wanted to uh, or not. But certainly the British had prepared the ground for the failure of, of the talks in terms of their publicity, especially in America. And again, uh, if Ireland, if the solution of the Irish question by, the voluntary, by its voluntary membership of the empire was seen as being uh, strengthened Britain's position in the empire, it was also seen as being massively important in America. Remember that the, the Treaty of Versailles had been voted down in Congress. And one of the principal reasons why it voted down was that the, the Irish in the Democratic Party, who were, of course, in control, and they controlled, Wilson was, uh, the president was a Democrat, and they controlled Congress, uh, would not vote in favour of the Treaty of Versailles, as it, as it in effect kept Ireland within the British Empire because it, it sanctioned existing boundaries. And now that's an indication of just how difficult the Irish in America could make life for Britain. Uh, so the British were very conscious that the Irish were very powerful, very well organised, very heavily, in, very influential in the Democratic Party, or at least in its northern areas. Um, and again, the solution of the Irish question, as far as they were concerned, and that they believed that the, the voluntary acceptance of the treaty offered that solution, would strengthen Britain's diplomatic position with America. So on the one hand, to come back to your, to your observation, yes, it would have, it would have, the, the British would have been in certain respects better placed to go back to war in late 1921 than they had been fighting the war in the summer of 1921. But again, if they could get peace and agreed peace with the Irish representatives, then this would tremendously strengthen their position uh, in, in America. And that, that issue of reverting to the cabinet, uh, Gabriel, what was the reason that ultimately they didn't go back before signing? Uh, th that's a very good question. And, and, and De Valera, I don't think anybody satisfactorily uh, explained it. Michael Collins, again, in his speech in the treaty debates, in effect said, we got the British to make certain slight changes, or no, as far as he was concerned, there were significant changes in the wording in those final few hours. And he believed that was just sufficient to enable him to sign up. Um, and of course, once Colin signs up and, and Griffith sign up, it's very difficult for any of the, the other uh, delegates to, to not do so also. Uh, I, I think the crucial point was simply that Collins they, they thought that you couldn't get any better agreement, that, that this was as far as you were going to go. And again, he, he, with regard to the issue of the war, he said, if we do go to war, all that we can hope for is to be back here in six months, 12 months, 24 months, negotiating with the British once again. We're not going to beat them uh, militarily. 
Uh, we didn't beat them militarily this time. What we did do was to drive them to the negotiating table. And all we can hope for the next time is to, to drive them back to the negotiating table. But we could lose. He said, if we risk going back to war, we could end up in a far worse position the next time uh, than we are now. So he, he genuinely believed the British wouldn't go any further. That it, 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 The treaty offered, as far as he was concerned, the things that were necessary to... Uh, to achieve independence, in particular British military withdrawal. That was the absolute keystone uh, as far as he was concerned. One element to it, though, that, that, that fascinates me, I think it could easily be argued that Collins' observation that it provided the freedom to achieve freedom ultimately over the following decades um, was borne out, apart from one very large and obvious element to it, and that was the North. Now, did the North feature large and had Dev, for example, got most of all the other stuff he wanted, would he and most of those around him have been happy to leave the North the way it was? As far, Sorry, I don't mean the way it was. I mean, as the British decided it was going to be under the Government of Ireland Act. Well, it's interesting. Remember that under the treaty, technically it creates a united Ireland. It creates, the Irish Free State uh, was specified to, as it were, be the, the whole of Ireland. But it was then agreed that if the Northern Ireland Parliament voted itself out, it could do so, but would then uh, have its boundaries reviewed. Uh, and one of the big questions was, of course, how extensive would that review be? Certainly some of the things that Lloyd George says in the Westminster debate uh, weren't because, of course, the British had to debate the treaty in London the same way the Irish were doing in Dublin. Some of the things that he said in that debate would, would lead one to believe that he did expect very substantial revisions to the border for Manor and Tyrone, for example, being transferred into the south, possibly South Armagh, the city of Derry, West Derry uh, and the like. Um, and of course, that would mean you would have enormous numbers of unionists being transferred into the south. Of course, you already had the unionists of Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan being transferred in the south. Uh, and the question would then come for, for unionists in the whole of Ireland as to whether they would actually not be better off accepting a united Ireland, especially if they, they could obtain some economic concessions, uh, rather than, than retaining a, a further, muta uh, uh, further revised border. Interestingly, and this is a point that I teach my classes, one of the first references I've ever come across to a boundary commission was actually made by James Craig himself in 1919, um, when the, the British were debating about where exactly the border should be established. He, he requested the six counters, but he suggested at that point a boundary commission in late 1919, uh, even though once the boundaries were set under the Government of Ireland Act, he came out as, and stated that he was outraged that any suggestion could be that they, they could be changed. So unionists were very unhappy with, with the Anglo-Irish Treaty, A, because... They had to vote themselves out of the free state, as it were, rather than voting themselves in. And B, if they did so, they would lose territory and, and, and population. And, and by population, basically, they meant more unionists than they'd already lost in, in, in the six countries. In terms of the treaty negotiations, of course, remember that James Craig refused to participate. Um, Lloyd George extended an invitation to James Craig and the Northern Parliament, the Northern Union's government to, to participate. Uh, and James Craig, smelling a rat, um, basically said, no, what we have, we hold. 
uh, when the terms were not particularly to their liking, uh, particularly with regard to the Boundary Commission, the Unionists were up in arms. But again, in, in the British Treaty debate, um, Lloyd George said, well, you, you're invited to participate and refused. So you can't really have too much ground to stand on uh, if you find that the final text isn't to your liking because you had the chance to, to influence that text. The issue of Northern Ireland certainly looms far larger in the British debate than it does in the Irish debate, largely because, of course, there was, there was almost no Northerners uh, represented in Dolaire, and the vast majority of the relatively small number of Sinn Féin TDs who represented Northern constituencies, like Michael Collins and, and others, uh, were from the South. So there were very, very few uh, representatives, even people like Ernest Blythe, who was a Northern Protestant, uh, but a Republican. Um, he represented a Southern constituency. So there, there were very few representatives in Dolaire and from, from the six counties, as it were. So would it be fair to say that in terms of sticking points, the mere concept or the idea, or as then it was the continuation on the basis of the Government Ireland Act some 18 months previously, the, the idea of partition was not a major sticking point as far as de Valera and some of the, Carl Brew and some of the Republicans were concerned. It's interesting, I was having a look at the, the wording of the various different offers, and in, in Lloyd George's initial offer in July, I mean, the wording is, is, is rather clever in the sense that it says that Northern Ireland should continue to exist and can't, there can't be unification without uh, consent. It doesn't say that Northern Ireland should continue to be governed from London, uh, as it were, it, it opened the the, board, the, the the door to, as it were, Northern Ireland existing, but within an all as it were, within sort of a, a 32 county general structure, but having the same degree of latitude in that structure as uh, it enjoyed under, under the United Kingdom. And De Valera, De Valera and, and it's fair to say this is one area that there was no real dissensus uh, between anybody involved in negotiating the treaty. They were all prepared to accept that Northern Ireland should continue to exist. Um, but what they what they sought was essential unity. And by essential unity, they meant that, in effect, Dublin, a Dublin parliament would replace the London parliament uh, in terms of control. Now, as we know, in terms of how Northern Ireland developed from the 20s through to the 70s, the London parliament took no interest whatsoever uh, in, in what was going on in, in Northern Ireland. Whether the Dublin parliament would have been as that, we don't know. But with, on the Republican side of things, that there was, as it were, an acceptance of the border. I think there was a, a general belief that somehow this border, which had only recently been created, which nobody really understood, including, I think, many unionists, and, and still many unionists thought in all island terms, uh, especially unionists on the border, southern unionists uh, and the like. And remember, the British wanted, and this is, I think, the, the point that is so often lost, at the end of the treaty negotiations, again in the Westminster debate, the British government said, we want the Northern Parliament to vote itself, to not vote itself out of United Ireland, because they realised if, if they did, the Southern Unionists would then find themselves in a tiny minority. The British government, so long as they got their bottom line, which is empire, oath of allegiance, defence, which, which basically they got, that what they then wanted to do is to make sure that the Southern Unionists, if they could be protected, would be protected. And the best way to protect them would be to keep, as it were, the, the, the six counties in the, uh, the Irish Free State. Of course, it didn't happen that way. 
Uh, but it's very striking that the Conservative Party, which people like Lord Birkenhead, F.E. Smith, who had been one of the leading members of the Conservative Party resistance to home rule back in 1912 to 1914, by 1921, and he's one of the leading British negotiators, is actively telling the North that he thinks that they should stay within the Irish Free State. Uh, and, and, and he was roundly condemned by Edward Carson, amongst others, for doing so. Would it be fair to say, therefore, Gabriel, that if, for example, as you say, that they all on the Irish side, uh, the, the, from De Valera down, to put it that way, they more or less accepted that there would be some form of partition. If that was the case, then could a case be made equally that Collins was correct in terms of his his um his summation as it being the freedom to achieve freedom, and that therefore over the coming decades, right up to the effectively the declaration of the Irish Republic in, in nineteen forty nine, whatever it was, that everything they wanted was ultimately achieved. In one sense, yes, and certainly De Valera, when he gets to power in the nineteen thirties makes a confession that he believed that Dominion status actually did give Ireland more practical freedom than he thought that it would. Um, one should remember, however, I think that, uh, that that doesn't necessarily vindicate Collins in 1921 because a great deal that happens in the 1920s where the British ultimately grant more and more freedom to the Dominion, Dominion status itself uh, expands in meaning to the point by which the Statute of Westminster in 1931, the British basically giving give up any attempt to control any aspect of, of the Dominion. So I don't think Collins could have foreseen, I don't think anybody else could have foreseen the way that the Dominions uh, were going to evolve in the, 19, in the 1920s. But certainly by the time De Valera comes to power in 1932, Dominion status has expanded in meaning compared to what it had been in 1921. But again, on, on the point of partition, I think the, the belief was that partition just wouldn't last. Uh, again, to come back to the, the issue of the economy, the, the general belief was, and again, this was in Britain as well as in Ireland, that the Irish Free State would be a cheap place to live, that you wouldn't have the massive defence expenditure that the British had, you wouldn't, you'd have a, a small state, as it were, as opposed to sort of the, the, the origins of the welfare state that the British had developed since Lloyd George's People's Budget in 1909, and that the level of taxation would be lower in the Irish Free State compared to Northern Ireland, and that, as it were, the, the economic card would lure the Unionists in. Uh, the Unionists made it very clear that they weren't going to be uh, bought by uh, the offer of a mess of pottage or 12 gold coins or whatever metaphor that you want yeah. to, to, to use. But 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 the, 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 there was a belief that partition had just been a tactical device, as it were, to get the unionists off their commitment to 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 not force also unionists under a Dublin parliament, and and that it would be resolved relatively quickly. Of course, as we know now, for a variety of reasons, including the Irish Civil War, the fact that the Boundary Commission wasn't uh, established uh, very quickly, the fact that the Conservative Party, to a certain extent, goes back. Uh, to the position that it had been prior to the treaty negotiations and a variety of other factors. We know now that partition was embedded by the by the, the mid-1920s uh, in a way that I don't think anybody expected. Okay, I think, let me suggest, I think that the, 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 that examiner editorial I um, quoted and which was very typical, I'd say, of an awful lot of coverage at the time, 
in particular the line that uh, one great thing has been done which nothing can undo Ireland's claim to independence has been admitted and in that context I think it was a momentous occasion. But I leave you with one very tough question Gabriel. Did they get the Irish negotiators as good a deal as it was possible to get under the circumstances? Uh, I I think probably yes. Uh, I mean, I suppose go back to what Sinn Féin, because they're all members of Sinn Féin, and what Sinn Féin had aimed at. In, under the 1917 Sinn Féin constitution, which had dropped dual monarchy, had dropped Arthur Griffith's original idea, uh, and said that Sinn Féin aims at the international recognition of Ireland, uh, of an Irish republic. So they got half of it. They got international recognition of statehood. And of course, Ireland then joins the League of Nations uh, and the like, albeit, of course, the 26 counters rather than the 32 counters. What they don't get is the other half, uh, the Irish Republic. Um, but what they do get is, as it were, is the freedom to develop forms of government internally that by the 1937 constitution are clearly republican. Uh, in fact, some... Uh, constitutional commentators say that the Free State Constitution of 1922 was Republican in all but name. But certainly Bunrock Naharan in 1937 is Republican, again, in all but name. It still doesn't include the word Republic, as far as I'm aware, in, in its text. But it's sufficient uh, basis upon which Ireland can declare the Republic and leave the empire in 1948, 1949. Uh, so I, I think it, I think it, it, the I don't think you would have got the British to move very far. Uh, and of course, the, the, the British might have come back and come back strong and done things that, for example, as they'd done in South Africa uh, 20 years before. And, and believe me, and I can show you, I can quote documents where the British were openly considering uh, organising concentration camps uh, in Ireland. Not Nazi death camps, but Lord French in 1920 and Lord French had experienced of the South African War, had said, if we are going to go to war with Ireland, this is the type of thing that we should be doing. So that the, the, the British did have other, as it were, uh, arrows in their quiver. I mean, they, they did have shots that, that they could have fired. Whether they would have been able to, whether international opinion would have allowed them to, uh, whether the cost would have been too great, it, it's difficult to know. Um, but again, the, the point comes back is that as far as the treaty delegation were concerned, and they're the one who'd, who'd done all the negotiating, the British were not going to go any further. Um, and again, the reason why they signed, whether they should or shouldn't have signed, the reason why they signed was ultimately because they wanted the decision to be taken, as it were, by the Irish people rather than by themselves. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that's where the tragedy lies, as it were. As it were, they, they had republican instincts, which is to refer to the people and let the people decide. But in order to get that Republican verdict, as it were, the verdict of the people, you have to, to adopt a monarchical imperial uh, framework. It is fascinating, Gabriel, a fascinating time, I think. And it, it is interesting, I suppose, to reflect a century later how the, the country has evolved and some might suggest it's still going through change. And there's that ultimate change, I suppose, that some people will refer to, and that is whether or not ultimately partition will be done away with. Gabriel Doherty from UCC School of History, thank you very much for joining us for a, a very interesting discussion today. My pleasure. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. You can get us on all the usual platforms and you can subscribe to the Irish Examiner for some quality journalism. We'll see you soon.